Good morning, everybody. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 16 as we continue in our study in Genesis. Are you a Christian? It's worth asking. It's like I asked this morning, you know, why are you here? <laughs> but, you know, these are, these are real basic questions, but we do things a lot of times without thinking about it. Out of tradition and out of habit. Sometimes we think of ourselves as Christians the same way. We don't even, we don't say, now wait a minute, am I, am I a Christian? Did I give my life to the Lord Jesus? Am I born again? Did he, did I ask him to fill me with his spirit? Have I been baptized in the name of Christ? Or do I intend to be? Am I, I wanna, I wanna, that symbol of that immersion into the Trinitarian life through the second person of the Trinity, through the Lord Jesus. Rejoicing in the forgiveness that he's given me. All these things. Do you ever think through them? I mean, they're basic. Do you ever go back and read the fine print? And how wonderful it is to be a Christian. So take a moment and uh, rejoice in that. And let soak in a particular thing that the Lord teaches us. If you're a Christian, of course, what you want to do is think like Jesus. That's what discipleship is about. He told his told his apostles, I want you to tell them how to teach them to think like I do. Basically, is what he said. Teach them everything I taught you. Teach them to think like I do. Which means, when you come to the Lord and you open up to him, one of the very first things he does is teach you about the scriptures themselves. Because Jesus' view of the scripture is that it is actually the voice of God. And we can argue about how to pronounce how the, the Lord is saying it, and we can argue about some of the things that we don't understand about what God has told us. Okay. But the, the scriptures are the voice of God, and Jesus actually taught all of his disciples to read the Old Testament regularly in light of who he is, with him as the eyepiece and the new covenant as the way of understanding it to read the entire Old Testament. And that's why we are in the book of Genesis. A lot of people think that Genesis is just about um, certain details that, that uh, you need to argue about. A lot of Christians argue about just the first chapter of Genesis. There are 50 chapters in Genesis. And they argue about just the first one. So get the, get the, the context. The theologians call it the canonical context, the, the standard context of the entire Bible and understand how important the Old Testament is. Jesus preached it all the time. 10% of everything Jesus said was quotation from the Old Testament. And, and then as his apostles wrote the New Testament, they quoted the Old Testament constantly. So as we go back through it, we need to get what is known as the canonical context. What does that mean? It means the, the whole story arc of the Bible. God is saying something through the scriptures concerning how he's rescuing his world. Remember that. So when you're reading, like, for instance, one of the accounts, we're going to read a really kind of interesting account today in chapter 16 of Genesis, but it doesn't stand alone. It's part of a much larger story that Jesus told his disciples and taught them from the Old Testament. And that story is how we were created, how we screwed it up, and how God is rescuing his world and us along with it if we'll trust Christ all the way through the rest of the Bible. How we were created, how we sinned and broke off our relationship with God, how he is restoring it. So when you get into Genesis chapter 12, it really, it really becomes very precise about how God is going to save the world. He's going to save the world through the seed of Abraham. And that's really, in a lot of ways, 
the most important, it's hard to say which is most important in a particular book of the Bible, but Genesis 12 and then again Genesis 15, which you saw last week when Trav was teaching it. These are the Abrahamic covenant as it is expanded. And what God says is, this world is dying. It's in a mess because it it went away from me. But I am going to, as it turns out, single-handedly rescue the world. And anybody who will trust me personally will also be rescued from in a fallen world. And it starts with the seed of Abraham. God says, I'm picking one guy. We saw this. I'm just reviewing it so you get the context for chapter 16. In chapter 12, he picks one guy out of paganism. He wasn't a believer. Abraham wasn't a believer until God spoke to him. None of us are. God said, you belong to me. Abraham said, yes, I do, as a matter of fact, and I want to, and I will do what you want me to do. And became the archetypical man of faith. And God said, from your seed, I am going to save the whole world. Someone is going to be born through the nation that's going to come from you miraculously. Someone will be born who will save the entire world. And he reiterates that again in chapter 15. Now remember that as we get down into the story a little bit, Abraham and Sarah can't have kids. And yet God says, I'm going to bless you with a multitude of descendants. And so they said, okay. Well, Abraham said, okay, we trust you for that. I think Sarah said, I'll go along with my husband. We're going to see a little about that today. She doesn't always go along with him. Anyway, um, but it didn't happen right away. They didn't get the land yet. They, just, they camped on the land and they became very, he, he, he had a whole clan around him. He probably had hundreds and hundreds of people that traveled with him and the one he was when as a Bedouin tribe you might say lots of people but they never owned the actual promised land and they didn't yet have a child so the Lord comes as you saw last week as Trav taught it in chapter 15 and the Lord says I haven't forgotten you Abraham and Abraham said really could have fooled me he really didn't say it exactly that way but he was upset a little he was pouring it out to God, lamenting like Travis mentioned last week, a little bit of faithful complaining. I don't have a kid yet. You told me I was going to have a kid and we're getting up. We're getting up in years. Where's the child? And the Lord says, he'll come. I promise you. And, they, and then there was that amazing um, moment where the Lord, the Lord said, I will do these things. And Abraham said, I trust you. And the Lord said, that actually is credited to you as righteousness. It became the, the way of understanding how God was going to save the world through faith. By simply trusting the promise of God. And then the Lord did that covenant. Remember where they cut the animals in half? Remember that? Yeah. Class, were you here last week? <laughs> They cut the animals in half. Everybody did that in those days when they made a big, a big, uh, uh, covenant. They call it cutting the covenant. And they cut some animals in half, put them on either side, walk down through the middle. Normally two people walk down, you remember. Normally two people would, would be saying, if I fail in this covenant, make me like these animals that have been cut and destroyed. If I fail in this covenant. Except God put Abraham to sleep. And God, God alone went down through. Which means, if this covenant fails, I will be cut. And that will fulfill the covenant. 
God takes the maledictory, that technically that's what they call it, a maledictory oath. That means, maledictory means a curse on myself. And that's exactly what salvation is all about. God says, I will save you by taking your curse upon me because I know you can't do it. You cannot save yourself. I'm going to be the one. How are you going to do that, Lord? Because a human has to do it. How are you going to do it? A human being got us into this. We're humans. We're the ones that screwed up. A human has to get us out of it. The Lord says, I'll get you out of it. Yeah, but you're not a human. Yet. See, they didn't know the whole story, but we do. So that covenant ceremony where the Lord says, I am going to bless the world and I'm going to do it through a covenant in which I take the curse on myself. They didn't understand that actually God would become a real human and do everything that needed to be done to save everybody that comes. That's just amazing. Is it? Yes. Okay. Can I hear an amen? Amen. (laughs) Okay. I mean, it really is phenomenal. So you have this dramatic moment, and, uh, and the Lord speaks directly to Abraham, and then he says, he gives him a little blueprint of what's going to happen, 400 years, your folks are going to be, as it turns out, in Egypt, and then, but then they're going to come back here, I'm going to drive the Canaanites out, as soon as their sin is ripe, I'm going to get rid of all of it, I'm going to send you in, he, sent, he tells him all this, it's really awesome, and you think to yourself, well, then that's the end of the troubles for Abraham, I mean, you know, he had this great vision. There won't be any more difficulty in his life from now on because God is amazing. I mean, you know, he gave him this vision. It's awesome. You know, can you imagine coming back to the tent for evening meal, you know, and Sarah's there and he's telling her all about this. And she's saying, dude, I am 75. Now, when you, she was, she was 75. Um, and now, but, but when you think of her 75, don't think of her as 75 as a woman today at 75 or a man today at 75. She lived to be 127, 127. So at the age of 75, she would be something like a really beautiful 50-year-old woman in our era. Beautiful enough that uh, certain other world leaders were very interested in her when Abraham was camping around their town. Pharaoh and Abimelech, later we write, we find out about it. You can be really pretty at the age of 50. You know you can. No comment. <laughs> you can, you just know on the inside you can do this. Well, that's actually, even though she was 75, but she was getting past childbearing. So here's what she's thinking. Well, if God's going to do this, I remember that he said that Abraham would father the child, but he didn't technically say that I had to be the mother. Yet. And she's tired of waiting. It's been 10 years. By the time we look into chapter 16, the trials for Abraham and his family are not over. Despite the fact that God had made this promise, very dramatic, a guarantee that God was going to accomplish these things, yet it hadn't been done yet. And you know that it's hard to live on promises, promises. There's always something in your life in which it hasn't been fulfilled yet, always something. And often... Some things have been fulfilled, but then there's always something else. 
And so we live on promises, promises, and we get tired of it. Sarah got tired of it. Sarai was her name at the time. Her name changes later, but she got tired of this, and she's 75. And Abraham's all excited about the fact that God promised him these things, and Sarah's not probably as excited as Abraham was. Marriage. And the pressures in marriage, you watch what happens in this chapter, chapter 16. Because the pressures within their relationship are very much behind the scenes in the decisions that are being made. Um, Many mistaken decisions in chapter 16. Poor Abraham. But also poor Sarah. Um, Let's begin. Now I'm going to read the whole chapter. And then we'll go back through it and unpack it. And then we'll learn a few things from it. Chapter 16, in God's plan to save the world, there are these chapters in the lives of his people that are very traumatic. In God's plan to save the world, there are small chapters in the lives of the people who belong to him. Who that, And these chapters can be very traumatic. They can be dilemmas and troubles on at that level. But they're part of this larger plan. And in this, I'll tell you ahead of time, what God does is he preserves the seed of Abraham and makes sure that the promise eventually gets fulfilled, even though Sarah and Abraham try to do it on their own. You'll see what happens. Let's read the whole thing. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, look, now... The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. They always blamed it on the women, by the way, if they couldn't have kids. And it was a terrible shame for a woman not to be able to have children in those days, much more than it is in our era. And so she's thinking, okay, God has prevented this. Maybe there's a way for me to get around it. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land in Canaan, 10 years there, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant. And it means, it means, um, not just a slave. This was a personal servant to the lady of the clan. I mean, uh, she was the first lady. Uh, Sarah was, Sarai was the first lady. This was her number one servant who helped her. And we don't know for how many years, but for some time. And and this girl is Egyptian. And so Sarai says, I want you to take her on as a secondary wife, a concubine. And uh, and maybe that's how God's going to do this. And I'm tired of waiting. i got to do something here. we got to do something. So she took... Uh, so she took Hagar, the end of verse 3, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, that's a legal thing. Polygamy was put up with. God put up with it, but it wasn't the original design. But it's not illegal for her to do this. And this was a common thing in that era when you couldn't have kids. Not just in this not just in this area, but they have uh, documents from Mesopotamia and from uh, north of here in the Newsy tablets um, where they did this. If they couldn't have kids, it was very important to have a son. You needed a male heir. And um, so sometimes surrogate motherhood would be the way of doing it. This wasn't just Abraham saying, I want another woman. He didn't want another woman. He loved Sarai. But uh, it, it was Sarai's idea, and it was culturally acceptable to do this. Uh, it always, polygamy was uh, 
tolerated by God, but it caused problems literally every time it happened. And every one of these families are dysfunctional. Um, okay. So she does this. And so he did. He did. He married Hagar. She became a, quote, they would, you call it a secondary wife or a concubine. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And the Hebrew word there could mean curse. Probably doesn't mean curse here, but it means absolute. It's like, I'm the woman of this thing now. I am in charge of this now. So take note of what's taken place here. The situation really does appear very dire. And and it feels at the time like God has waited too long. I've got to do something. Sarah comes up with a plan, and the plan does seem plausible. It's legal. Um, it's what other people do. However, it's shifting the faith from God's promise to man's activity. It's shifting the confidence of what's going on from God's promise to man's activity in this thing. And so it, it results in almost immediate and then chronic trauma all the way through until uh, chapter 21. There must have been trauma in this household. And it begins right here because Hagar... Um, becomes arrogant and abusive. That's that's the implication here when it says that she disdained. She disdained Sarai. Uh, she looked with contempt. Different translations. I don't know what translation you're using, but they come from the Hebrew word that means to disdain, to look down on. And verbally, probably, she's saying, I'm the woman. I'm pregnant. It was before Ishmael was born. She just knew she was pregnant. And the word got out. Hagar's pregnant with Abraham's child. Hagar's thinking to herself, I have now become the first lady in this sizable small civilization all around Abraham. I am more important than Sarai. And I don't know what their relationship had been prior to this, but people's working relationships are sometimes not all that good, not all that healthy. And so it could have been that they had had some friction from time to time and, and Hagar had resented Sarai for various reasons, like people resent their bosses from time to time. Whatever the case, this shifted the power structure in Hagar's mind. Now Hagar is thinking to herself, I have been blessed by God. Sarai's thinking to herself, I've been cursed by God. That's the way they would have interpreted it in their hearts. And Hagar starts to rag on Sarah, which does not bode well. So Sarah, <laughs> she starts to rag on Abraham. And let me tell you, my heart goes out to this guy between these two women. This poor dude, he's thinking, this is not what I signed up for. When I, when I started walking with God, I did not know I was going to get into this. This is a mess. I want my own tent. Sorry, I said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. This is your fault. I gave my servant into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai, you were thinking about God when you came up with this plan? Really? Well, now I am. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai, hey, look, she works for you. Haven't you seen the organizational chart? She works for you. You can, you can tell her to shut up and sit down and leave you alone and stop ragging on you. you can, she works for you. 
before Abraham. Your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Now, he doesn't mean kill her or any stupid thing like that. He just means, hey, look, so take a little authority here. If she's being insubordinate and the politics in the tents is, you know, it gets on Facebook and she's sending pictures of her tummy to everybody and saying, look, baby. You know, the gossip and the whole thing. And, and Abraham, poor Abraham, he just says, you can, you can just tell her, you, can, you can't fire her yet, but you can tell her to sit down and be quiet. And that's exactly what Sarah does, and she's rather harsh about it. These two women are really at each other's throats. Partly Sarah's, it was her idea, and, but, but Hagar blows it too. She can, and so, um, Hagar runs away. She flees. And uh, I, I just want to point out a couple things right here. I'll just jump in and say them. If you have an advantage over somebody else, are you liable to lord it over somebody else based on the advantages you have? Because that's what Hagar does, and it causes enormous trouble. It would have been nice if Hagar had said, look, I'm... This is surrogate motherhood. I'm doing this for Sarai and Abraham. I'm a surrogate mother. That's my role. But that's not how she viewed it. And it's often human beings do this. They, they acquire some sort of an advantage in life. And then they lord it over those who do not, who do not have that advantage. And they look down on it. It comes across in all kinds of ways. And it's really uh, grievous. It's grievous. It's, it's not the way the Lord is. And of course, there's no indicator that Hagar was what we would call a genuine believer, at least not yet. I don't know. It's, it's a question worth asking. How we treat other people when we have more than they do or we have something important that they don't have. Do we make a big deal about the fact that we have this thing and they don't, whatever it may be. So we need, I don't know, we can learn to be careful about stuff like that. And Sarah blames Abram even though, and it's kind of funny because it was Sarah's idea. You can see Abraham going, hey, this wasn't my idea. However, she must have influenced him into it because he went along with the plan. And I would like to mention something I mentioned uh, months ago when we first started Genesis because there's a parallel between Eve and what she gave to Adam. And in the language, you can really see the parallel. Commentators pointed out. And what uh, Sarai does with Abraham here. There's some key words that are used in both stories. And we're supposed to see the parallel. And I asked back then, I'll ask it again now, to my sisters, I respect you, I care for you as your pastor, but what kind of influence do you have on the men in your life? Because Sarai has huge influence on Abraham. And and I'm in a minute, I'll get on Abraham's case, he should have stood up and said, this is a bad plan. But, But when you have these intimate relationships, men want to be respected, usually, they want to be respected by the women in their lives. And if the women in the life of a man do not say, I want you to be able to do what God wants you to do, I want to get behind what God wants you to do in your life, if they press them in the wrong direction, influence them in a way that is detrimental to discipleship, to walking with God... That's really a bummer. That is, we're, we're, men and women were created to influence each other toward the Lord. You look at the, look at the original creation. 
And, and ever since the fall, men and women have influenced each other away. So let me ask the sisters, how do you view your role with the men in your life? Whether it's a husband, a father, an uncle, a, a child, um, whatever. But do you say to yourself, I want to be the best influence I can be? And uh, I may be frustrated with my life, but I'm not going to blame it on somebody else. I'm going to try and help somebody else to make good decisions. It's a thought, okay? Like I've said before, if this offends, I, I'm sorry. Uh, you can write Travis at trail.org. Because <laughs> I'm out of here. Soon. Now, uh, notice too, Abe does not step up. And um, this is pointed out by everybody who reads the story. He, uh, under the pressures that happen in marriage, wanting to not have his wife be upset with him, seeing the stress of the 10 years without the boy, um, and feeling the pressure of the whole clan on Sarah, then she puts it on him. You could, you could see this. And yet he should have done what Adam should have done too, which was, don't do that. Eve goes, I want some of that fruit. Adam should have said, no. The Lord said, we want to do what God wants here. But he doesn't do that. And here again, it's the pressure of the, the male and female and their impact on one another, see? And he does fail. Uh, everybody agrees when you read the account. Um, this is a huge mistake on his part. Um, in, in, in several different ways. He, he could have protected Hagar. He could have corrected Sarai. He could have stopped the whole thing to begin with. He didn't do any of that. And so a very difficult thing comes around. Men have to take some responsibility at times in ways that are uncomfortable. I would ask my brothers, uh, husbands, fathers, brothers, you know, uh, if the shoe fits, wear it. Are there times when we have to actually say, uh, look, I know it's unpopular. I know, I, I know uh, that my family might be a little upset with me about this, whatever. I have to tell you the truth. This particular plan is, is really not right for us. We need to, whatever the case may be. Men are called upon to do that. And um, anyway, so some advice. Now, what happens now is after Hagar runs away and she goes to Egypt because the place where she stops is uh, there's this well at Shur on the, on the road. And it's on the way to Egypt and it's quite some distance. She got, she got out there quite a ways and she's preggers for heaven's sake. We don't know how far along, but she's pregnant and she's traveling in the desert and she's Egyptian and the place where she stops is on the highway back to Egypt. So she's going home. Um, that, or she's trying to go home. And what happens is the angel of the Lord first, it's just an amazing first mention here where the angel of the Lord actually meets her. And it's a, it's a wonderful scene in so many ways. The angel of the Lord, verse 7, found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? It's very interesting because it's what God said to Adam and Eve when they were hiding from him in the, in the garden. What are you doing? And of course he knows what she's doing, but... Um, he wants her to know what she's doing. He wants her to evaluate, what am I doing? He wants her to think it through. She's running away. Um, by the way, let me mention that the angel of the Lord is probably the pre-incarnate Christ. That's the traditional view. 
Now, scholars make a living, Bible scholars make a living disagreeing with one another. This is how they make their money. And so if you do any research on this, you'll find they'll argue back and forth on it. I hold the traditional view. I think it's the best explanation. If you have any questions about it, come up afterwards and talk to me. But if no one has ever seen God at any time, unless they've seen Jesus, it's what it says in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Then chances are this is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, who's, who's also called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, because he's called Yahweh. And he speaks directly for Yahweh. And Hagar assumes she's talking to God when this is happening. So it's probably the pre-incarnate Christ. And I want you to see the grace that he brings to her. Here's this woman. This wasn't her fault, this mess, except that she caused the strife, some of the strife. But it wasn't her idea to get pregnant. And so he, he tracks her down and he comes to her in real grace. And uh, he says, what are you doing here? And she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. You can just see her, you know, she's crying. My stupid mistress, I never liked working for her in the first place. And I'm pregnant. <laughs> and the angel said, you need to go back. He says, I want you to go back and submit to her. I want you to go work for her again is the idea. The angel of the Lord said to her, but I'm blessing you. Look at the blessing. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they become, um, cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, and now if you have a, a, a good translation, it puts the next two verses in poetry. And whenever something's in poetry, it means it's super important and you're getting a picture drawn. For That's what poetry does. It draws a picture. It's not prose. It's used uh, as a literary device to emphasize the, the beauty or the drama of what's being said. Does that make sense? You guys get that? So the poetry is really important. Anyway, so this goes into poetry in the literature. And look what the angel of the Lord says. Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. That's a huge blessing just to have a son and to know that you're going to live through childbirth, which killed unnumbered women in the ancient world. You're, going to, you're pregnant. You're going to have a son. That's a huge blessing. You're going to call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. I have heard. You're going to, so God names the child. That's amazing. God names this child. That means he will have a relationship with this, with this child and with Ishmael, I mean with uh, Hagar. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. I, I just think that's wonderful that the Lord listens to our affliction. Whether you're a man or a woman, he comes at the point of despair. I just think that's wonderful. Um, now, on the other hand, this boy is going to be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> it doesn't mean dumb. It means he's going to live uh, alone. He's going to have, a, uh, we'll find out later, he actually has an entire tribe around him that becomes a great multitude. But he's not going to be an easy guy to get along with. Look at that. His hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand will be against him. And he'll dwell over against his kinsmen. So you're going to have a son. He's not going to be an easy guy to deal with. 
But she doesn't care. She's not a psychologist. She's, she's a person who's saying to herself, I'm going to live through childbirth. The angel of the Lord is talking to me. I'm going to, I'm going to be a matriarch of an entire civilization for heaven's sake. Well, maybe this horrible situation I've been in isn't as horrible as I thought it was. God came and visited me here. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God of seeing. It's a little tough to translate a couple of these lines. The God who sees me is is one way to translate it, or the God who can see. is the only place in the Bible where somebody gives God a name. Isn't that interesting? Everywhere else, God gives people names, and God gives himself a name. It's the only place where someone says, I'm going to call you this, the God who sees It's an Egyptian handmaid, and she says, you see me. You're the God who sees me. You know, God does see you, by the way. He sees your heart. He sees everything that's inside of you. He sees every trauma. And sometimes we think because the Lord lets us go through difficult things, that means he doesn't care. That's just not true. We live in a fallen world. He deals with this girl in a the most gracious way and she says you're the God who sees me El Roy is the is the Hebrew there she said truly here I have seen him who looks after me again difficult to translate this but the ESV translation is a good one I have seen the one who sees me and I'm I've seen the one who's watching over me I've seen and I discovered that he's watching over me wow and therefore, the well is called Bir Roy, the well of the living one who sees, is in Hebrew. And uh, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. This is a real historic event. This really took place. The wells are really there where they met. That's why the details are there. This is the well that's between Kadesh and Bered. This is where this took place. It's a real historic event that took place. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore to him, Ishmael. Which means, uh, by the way, that means that Hagar went back, told Abram this story, and Abram believed her and gave the name, the right name. He didn't say, hey, you're an Egyptian, what do you know? Uh, I'm going to name the child, it's my son, I get to name him in that day day and era. It would have been up to Abram to give the name, and he doesn't do it, he uses the name Hagar brings, which means he believed her. And he's cooperating with God by giving this name, Ishmael, to, uh, to this boy. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. I do want to point out that Hagar sometimes gets a bad rap, but it, none of this is her fault, really. We'll get back to this in a second, or a few seconds. <laughs> we'll get back to this. Paul uses Hagar and Sarah as an illustration of the difference between works and faith. But it's not Hagar's fault that's going on here. And there's a lot of ways in which she really is, um, I don't know, an illustration of the grace of God. Look at the number of ways. He meets her personally, promises her a son, promises her a great nation, and names her son for her. But then he says, you do have to go back into a very difficult situation because this is part of my plan. I am blessing you by being with you, but you have to be in this difficult situation. You can't run away to Egypt. And the reason 
part of the reason for that is because this is also Abraham's seed, not the promised seed, not the miraculous one that's Isaac we'll see next week, but it's still Abraham's. And God said, I'm working with Abraham, so I'm working with Ishmael too, but not the main promise. The main promise will come through Isaac. Look at the blessing for Hagar and look how she's, did you notice that the angel didn't appear to Sarai in this case? He appears to the woman who's hurt. I just, and she obeys him. She does it. She goes back. She said, well, if the Lord told me, then I'm doing what I'm, I'm, I'm doing what he told me to do. That did not mean that there was no stress. By the time you get to chapter 21 of Genesis, you can see the stress is still there. Fifteen years later, fifteen years later, when Isaac actually is weaned, Isaac is born and then he is weaned, which is usually around two years. They would wean them two years, three years, right in there. And uh, then there's another breakdown in the family. And once again, Sarah, I mean, uh, Hagar ends up in the desert. And uh, once again, the Lord comes and you can read it. You know, it's right there. There's a book on your lap right now. It's got all this stuff in it. You can read it anytime you want. It's chapter 21. But I'm amazed at, uh, in a way, I'm amazed at Hagar's faith here. And you say, well, was God really working with someone who's outside the covenant? Um, We don't know how long she was outside the covenant. We don't know what God was doing other than the fact that he said, I am talking to you today, and she does what he says. So good for her. And that she, after these accounts, she sort of fades from the scene. We don't see her again. What a mess, huh? Is this not a mess? I mean, look at, uh, Sarai is frustrated. She pressures Abram into doing something he probably knew wasn't such a cool idea. Um, nobody does the right thing in this situation. It is, uh, it's a dilemma. It's a difficult time. So what can we learn? Well, I have some ideas, some thoughts about that I think come from this. Navigating faithful struggles. Navigating faithful struggles. Because the life of faith is filled with struggles. This idea that, you, that you're not going to struggle, you're not going to make mistakes, everybody makes mistakes in this story. Everybody. The idea that you're not going to make mistakes, you're not going to have struggles to deal with, that's just unrealistic. In a fallen world, this isn't Eden and this isn't heaven. This is a fallen world. And so can we learn to navigate a little bit? Yeah, I think we can. Um, how do people deal with struggles in their lives? Well, let me first of all mention some people uh, get mad at God and blame him for everything. Now, if you, put in, if you put that into the situation, notice what Sarai says. I don't know if she was really angry with God or not, but she said, God is preventing me from getting pregnant. So therefore, I have this, I have this plan. Sometimes when people get upset with God because something doesn't happen the way they want it, in their upsetness, they make some very bad decisions to try and, quote, solve something when, in fact, waiting and trusting would have been a better plan. But some people, that's the way it is. You know, you hit a dilemma and you get mad at God and you start making bad decisions. Think of all the things she could have thought or somebody mad at God. Why didn't God explain this to me ahead of time? You know, if he'd have sat down with, with Abraham and Sarah 10 years ago and said, you guys are going to be another 25 years, so just hang in there. Uh, it'll be okay. On the other hand, if you'd have done that, where would the faith have actually been? But we can blame God. Why didn't you explain this to me ahead of time? 
Some people are very upset with him. Why did God wait so long in the first place? If he says, this is going to be another 25 years, I have to wait until you can't have kids anymore in order to show that salvation comes by grace because of my miracle. That's why I have to wait to give you Isaac. So I'm explaining it all ahead of time. Why do we have to wait that long? So we have these questions. Why, God? Why did you let it get? Why am I in this? What? Why me? Why this? Why now? And so people turn away, come up with their own plans. Why did God allow this whole situation with Hagar in the first place? Listen, if you start asking questions like that out of a heart of bitterness, then that's not just complaining to God. It's okay to complain to God. The Psalms are filled with it. We see it in Abraham. And Sarah also was, knew that God was behind it, but here's part of the difference. Abraham talked to God about it. Sarah talked to Abraham about it. Sarah complained around. Abraham was honest with God. Where's the child we need? Sarah says, we haven't had the child yet. I want you to help me fix it. And this is how we're going to do it. That's a very different thing. Sometimes when people are upset with the Lord... It goes beyond legitimate lament. It's okay to lament. It's okay to cry out. It's a, you see it in Psalm 88. It's so clear. The darkest psalm in the Psalter. But the guy's talking to God. He's, he's pouring out his heart to God. It's totally okay. But then when you're mad at God, be careful you don't make other plans that are very ungodly and faithless. So some people, just many people actually, say, well, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I didn't sign up for this. I'm upset. On the other hand, you could actually trust the Lord. And now we learn by contrast as we look at this. And let me offer three pieces of advice. And um, how could, how, and when you look at this account in chapter 16, how could things have been better? Three pieces of advice for navigating the difficulties that we have. Number one, you could trust the providence of God. You could assume, let's pretend God knows what he's doing. We sang a song about Sovereign, that, that, that song, Sovereign. Do you ever sit down with people and you're just upset about this and that and the other thing? Like, for instance, having to wear a mask. Or living in a, an entire world that's dealing with COVID. What if we sat down and pretended this wasn't an accident, God knows what he's doing, how can we respond? What if we did that? See, that would be trusting providence. That would be a, assuming that God was doing something behind the scenes. If, if Sarai had said, God must have a plan in this and my plan's not going to fix it. If she'd have said that and waited, the mistakes that were made here would not have been made. So let me explain a little more about that. When you trust providence, God uses human decisions, even bad ones even bad ones, to bring about his long-term plan. Now, we see that in here. She should have trusted providence. She should have trusted God, but she didn't. She made a mistake. So did Abraham, and to a certain extent, to a limited extent, so did Hagar. And yet, look what God does with it. He creates a whole other nation, and apparently it was plan his plan to create the other nation. Well, what, what, what? You mean God can use our mistakes? You mean our decisions somehow come under his authority, even though they feel like perfectly free decisions to us? That's exactly what I mean. That's exactly what I mean. 
And if you're going to trust the sovereignty and the providence of God, then the only way to live is to say, I, I want to make good decisions. I know I am free to make good decisions in Christ as a Christian. But I know that even if I make a mistake, God will still use it for something good. And that's exactly what this thing illustrates. There's a ton of mistakes being made here. And this, this is a mystery. Uh, you say, well, wait a minute. Does that really work in real life? I don't see how that can work. How God's mind and the human mind can somehow combine to get God's will ultimately done, even with bad decisions. You're in Genesis. Turn to Genesis chapter 45. Now, this deals with uh, Joseph, who is Abraham's great-grandson. We're moving forward in the story. Genesis chapter 45. Joseph, great-grandson of Abraham, son of Jacob. And uh, you remember the story. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. You talk about dysfunctional families with polygamy. When we get there, you see this again. Um, And Joseph is kind of a little uh, snarky guy, actually, in his family. And he alienates all of his older brothers. They sell him into slavery. You remember the story. He ends up in Egypt. He languishes there for 20 years. And then the Lord sees to it that he becomes eventually the prime minister of Egypt during a huge famine. And that's how the Lord preserves the seed of Abraham. But more on that when we get there. But look at what he says when he reveals himself. He looks like an Egyptian. They didn't recognize him. His brothers come to Egypt and he reveals himself to them. And Joseph, verse 4 of chapter 45 of, uh, of Genesis, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and they said, and he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Can you imagine these boys, these boys, they're not boys, they're in their 50s and 60s. But they had done this evil thing years ago, lied to their dad about it. It's been, the, it's been under the rug all this time. And here's Joseph looking like the prince of Egypt. And saying, I am Joseph, you guys sold me into slave. They think, okay, off with our heads. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do it. He says, now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You did this horrible, horrible thing, but I want you to calm down. God sent me before you to preserve life. The famine has been in the land two years, and he explains it. Look at verse 8. Well, look at verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to keep alive for you many survivors so that it was not you who sent me here but God. Now that is trusting the providence of God. Even when someone someone else cheats, ruins something, uh, blows up your life, and then if you're trusting, though, that God actually, that Romans 8.28 is really true, I mean, if you're trusting that, we'll see that in a sec, then you, then you say, wait a minute, if this is not an accident, I don't have to solve it. All I have to do is navigate it and live faithfully in the middle of it. Now, that's how we learn from these kinds of mistakes that were made in chapter 16 of Genesis. Trust the providence of God. Let's pretend that God knows what he's doing. Remember a couple of weeks ago I mentioned, hey, football season started. Do you know what a broken play is in football? A broken play? It's when they plan to do a particular play, but the defense does something else, and so you can't 
complete the play. So the quarterback runs around and they, and he finds someone else to pass the ball to. It's a broken play. A lot of touchdowns happen from broken plays. Now what God does is he takes the plans of humans and when they get broken, because we live in a fallen world, he can still make a lot of mileage out of it. That's providence. That's providence. He does something good. He uses human decisions, even bad ones. There are more examples of his use. I won't turn to it, but in Acts 2.23, this is the thinking behind the cross of Christ. Peter says to the Jews on, in Acts 2, on, on the day of Pentecost, God planned this ahead of time, and you still did it. You're responsible for what you did, but God's plan was involved in it. What? Yeah, it works that way. So this idea that I want to live responsibly but still trust the providence of God, even though we can't figure it out, that's the only way to actually live. Now in Genesis 16, they made some real mistakes. And yet God steps in, the angel of the Lord steps in and says, I'm still going to use this, I'm going to do this. I want this other race to exist. It's an amazing scene. So he doesn't prevent, you know, under providence, he uses human decisions. He doesn't prevent all of our mistakes. Why don't you stop me from making mistakes? Well, because you learn so much from your mistakes. Isn't that true? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. The best, the, the strongest things you've ever learned are always because of a mistake. Reality is what you find out when you discover you were wrong about something. You hit a wall. Boom. Oh. That's reality. You never lo- And you know what you learn in mistakes? Humility and wisdom. Because when, when the Lord touches our sorrow, our failures, with grace, it produces wisdom. This is how to live a life where you've got a lot of dilemmas and a lot of things to deal with. It's the only way to live life. Because apparently the Lord's goal is not to simply make it so that our life doesn't have these kinds of mistakes in it or these kinds of dilemmas to deal with. He could have solved this a dozen different ways and he doesn't do it. Apparently his plan is not to make life easy. And that's why, turn to Romans 8.28, very famous. One of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. But I want you to have a look at it because people stop in verse 28 and they don't go on to verse 29. This is all under the providence of God. He doesn't prevent our making mistakes. He uses human decisions even when they're not wise decisions. He lets us learn from them and he brings something good out of them. Romans chapter 8, very famous. The Apostle Paul, he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He doesn't say all things are good. There's some very not good things in, in Genesis 16 and all through the Bible. But he doesn't say everything's good. He says, I choreograph it in such a way that something good happens in the lives of my people. That's what he's saying here. For those who are called according to his purpose, that's you, Christian friend, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and here's the good he's doing. You see this? Underline it. Conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn, that means the head of the family, among many brothers. You know what the Lord is doing in our lives through our mistakes? He's teaching us how to think like Jesus, the bottom line. He's teaching us this. And some of us say to ourselves, I would rather not think like Jesus that much, if that's okay. I would just like to live a life in which I never make mistakes. 
Am I right about that or wrong? Do you think? Have you ever met a person who thinks they never made a mistake? They are insufferable. They're so arrogant and insufferable. And you said, Lord, please prevent me from being insufferable. And he said, okay. So there's humility, there's wisdom. These things happen because we make mistakes. But we trust the providence of God to use even the bad decisions of humans to then produce among those who know the Lord Christ-likeness, which then makes them gold. It gives you, it makes you solid gold. Isn't that amazing? In a fallen world, I think this is very hopeful. So the very first thing to do if you want to navigate well is trust the providence of God. Here's the second thing to do. Cultivate patience. It's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Cultivate patience. Why? Well, look what this, this thing happened because Sarah said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done waiting. We're going to fix this the worldly way. We're going to do this on our own. And that's what brought out what was a huge mistake. So the second piece of advice is cultivate patience. How do you cultivate patience? You cultivate patience by just living long enough to have a bunch of stuff go wrong. Raise your hand if a bunch of stuff has gone wrong in your life. Okay, well, those are all the points at which you said, uh, uh, oh, I have to trust that God's at work here. I'm not going to overreact. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let makrothumia is the Greek word used in, uh, in uh, Galatians 5. It means long-suffering. It means the ability to bear up over a period of time with a very difficult circumstance, like many of us have been doing the last three or four years. Just bearing up under it. Just saying, I'm trying to keep a good attitude here. I'm trusting that God knows what he's doing. I'm trying to navigate well, represent Christ well in the circumstances I find myself in. Cultivate that. The Lord brings it about in us. There's a book by Mark Sayers. just came out in 2022. It's called A Non-Anxious Presence. And the thesis of the book is simple. It's that if you're going to be a leader in this culture today, you have to not let anxiety drive you and you have to trust the Lord in the kind of ways we're talking about here. And it's called a non-anxious presence by Mark Sayers. It's, there's some good wisdom in there. In Philippians chapter 4, you know, turn to Philippians. Uh, ladies' ministry, women's ministry is going to be in Philippians here. And uh, Philippians 4 is a real famous, famous passage I'm sure the sisters are looking forward to teaching it and learning it. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord as long as things are going well. Oh, no. It says rejoice in the Lord all the time. Again, I say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, it's a very wonderful word. It means the kind of person that you're not afraid of them. Because they're reasonable people. Let your reasonableness um, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. See, a non-anxious presence. Do not be anxious about anything in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. It would have been a lot better if Sarah had done that. Cultivating patience is not easy. We talk about it, but it's difficult. And uh, what happens is you can't create it yourself and you can't learn patience by taking a class on it. Uh, patience happens on your way home from church. Okay. 
I got good notes here. And then on the way home, low blood sugar, you know, you, you got to get something to eat, whatever. And you, Okay, well, that's the moment where the Lord says, hey, hey, yo, I've been talking about patience here. It's the opportunity for you to grow in this way. You want to navigate well, trust the providence of God, cultivate patience, and finally, of course, live in the promise. Now, this is really, really important. You say, what do you mean, live in the promise? Where, 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 where do we find that in Genesis 16? Oh, no, wait. Did God make a promise? Did Sarah believe it? No. You want to navigate well? Learn to live in the promises of God. And the main promise of God, backing up again, looking at the whole Bible, the main promise of God is that the seed of Abraham is the Messiah, Jesus. If you, if now we're backing up and saying, look, the world is a mess. And if you see the mess that the world is and you're, and you're fighting anxiety about it, this point right here that I'm bringing out to you, this is the most important thing you're going to hear this morning. The promise is that the Lord's kingdom is the one that's going to survive everything. You want to be a part of that. You want to live in the promise of the seed of Abraham, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Salvation happens because the Lord saves us based on his absorbing the curse, chapter 15 of Genesis. And he teaches us, by contrast from chapter 16, that we should trust his word and what he says. It's going to be okay for you. You are going to live forever. You are Abraham's offspring. That's good news. That's living in the promise. You know, we joke about it, you know, but Christians need to have this eternal view that I live in the actual promise of the Messiah. I don't see everything yet, but I trust what God is saying, and I'm going to live faithfully at that point. That begins with saying yes to Jesus Christ. It begins with saying, would you come into my heart? Would you take over my life, Lord? Would you make me a part of this plan to save the world? I repent of my sins. I open my heart to you. That's why I started by asking you this morning, are you a Christian? Do you know if you're a Christian? Um, do you? Because that's living in the promise. That's the beginning of living in the promise. But that's not the end of living in the promise. Now the rest of your life, you live under the providence of God, trusting the patience that God is putting in your life, leaving all of the details out there for him and not trying to solve everything in the flesh. That's everyday life as a believer. Our time is up. Can you take God's word for something? Because he's sovereign. Can you trust him and learn by contrast? Can you know that even if you've made mistakes, big mistakes like this, God can still use the wreckage and make art out of it and use you no matter what? Can you live in that kind of promise, that kind of hope? I hope so. If you haven't given your life to the Lord, there'll be some folks up here. Or if he spoke to you about anything today, through this message, there'll be some folks here afterwards that stand here for the express purpose of praying. Let the Lord actually draw you into that grace and into that sovereign promise that he has. Hey, amen? Let's all stand and pray, and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, uh, we look at our own mistakes. We see the mistakes that uh, Sarah made, that Abraham made, that Sarah, I mean, that Hagar made. And we see that even in the wreckage, you have something redemptive you're doing.
But we, we want to make fewer mistakes, Lord. So would you please teach us to live in your providence, in your promise, and with the kind of patience that you have taught us to have. We need you, Lord, to accomplish this in our souls, in our hearts. And some of us would lay before you right now the dilemmas that we are currently facing, the pain that we are currently in. And we would ask you to sift through it and bring wisdom so that we can respond to it properly. We ask that you would grant to us in these specific circumstances that you would grant to each one of us what we need in order to honor you and glorify you and trust you in these processes. We thank you so much for loving us, for being sovereign and providential over us, for using even our mistakes, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.